So friends, you turn with me now to your Bibles, uh, to page 811 in the church Bibles. And we're looking this morning at uh, Matthew chapter 6, and I'm going to read to us from verse 5 through to verse 15. This is Jesus' teaching. It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's a very famous part of the Bible. And so let's look at it together. Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 5. Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. They may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly Father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their trespasses neither will your Father Forgive your trespasses. I think it would be fair to say that most of us consider that the biggest barrier to prayer is time. If we were to take a straw poll right now, if we were to do a survey on SurveyMonkey or some other internet tool that could do a survey throughout the church, and if we were to ask people what was the single most difficult thing that prevented them finding uh, opportunity for prayer, I, I, I'm pretty sure that the, the thing that we would find was the prevalent issue was time. We feel busy. We have many responsibilities. We have a busy job. We have many people that we are responsible for that are asking us to do things. We have children. We, we have parents who need our help. We have studies. We, we are busy. We you know, there's a whole bunch of Netflix binge shows that we need to catch up on, you know. Busy. And of course, time is an issue, no doubt. We do live in a 24-7 world where we're constantly bombarded with things that we could do. Time is an issue. But when Jesus teaches on prayer... It is not uh, time that he focuses on. I don't think it's just because he lived in a different world, a different part of history to us. No, according to Jesus, it seems to me that the biggest barrier to our prayer is not so much time, it's a misunderstanding of what prayer is. He assumes that his disciples will pray when you pray. It's not if you find time to pray, it's when you pray. And when Jesus here teaches on prayer, he describes what prayer is not and then what prayer is. He's giving, as it were, the don'ts and the do's of prayer. 
what you should not do and what you should do. And then when he comes to describe what prayer is, what you should do, he divides that up into what prayer is in terms of praying to God and then what prayer is in terms of praying for ourselves. So there are really three parts to this teaching, what prayer is not, what prayer is in terms of praying to God, and then what prayer is in terms of praying for ourselves. And all along, Jesus is redefining prayer, redefining prayer against our common misunderstandings about prayer. Do not pray like the hypocrites, he says. Do not pray like the Gentiles or the pagans, he says. There's a right way to pray and there's a wrong way to pray. And therefore, Jesus' agenda in this passage is to teach us how to pray by first showing us what prayer should not be like, then what prayer should be like in terms of praying to God, and then what prayer should be like in terms of praying for ourselves. So this morning, I'm actually going to preach three sermons. Don't worry, not three sermons in one half an hour. I preach a sermon at 8 a.m. on what prayer should not be like from verses 5 to 8. Then at 9.30 a.m. what prayer should be like in terms of praying to God from verses 9 and 10. And now here at 11 a.m., the 11 a.m. service, what prayer should be like in terms of praying for ourselves. If you want to hear the other parts of the ministry this morning, you can catch it online when it goes up on our webpage this evening or by first thing tomorrow morning. So I'm going to preach three sermons this morning, which means I will get paid three times as much or something. So at uh, the 8 a.m. service, I explain verses 5 to 8, then at the 9.30, verses 9 and 10, and now here we are at the 11 a.m. service, verses 11 to 15. Jesus says, let me read it out for us again, Jesus says this, Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So this section here is the second half of the Lord's Prayer. And while in the first half, Jesus models for us beginning with praying for God's kingdom, his will, his name to be hallowed, that is for his agenda, not ours. Now in the second half of the Lord's Prayer, he comes right down to prayers for ourselves. Now it is very important that we do not forget the second half of the Lord's Prayer. Some people become so spiritual, they're almost super spiritual, and act as if they are kind of homo religious, as if there's no real practical concerns that they have. They live in some kind of super spiritual bubble where everything is always about religion, homo religios. But Jesus does not model that kind of spirituality nor that kind of prayer. He starts very practically in verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. 
Now, there have been innumerable commentaries, sermons, discussions, books written about what this means, and you'll be relieved to know that I'm not going to delve into all that. It seems to me to be deeply ironic that the most practical part of the Lord's Prayer has become most theoretically debatable. Something in that is deeply human. I think that Jesus is probably reflecting on the sort of Old Testament teaching you find in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8, where it says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. In other words, this is something very practical. Jesus is modeling for us to pray for our practical daily sustenance. Now, sometimes it is hard for us to believe that this is even necessary. We're so shielded from the uncertainties of the food provision system in the Western world. I, I remember when I first came back from the mission field and walking into what Americans call a grocery store or a supermarket in uh, England and just not knowing what to do about all the food I saw. A few hours earlier, I walked into a similar store and seen the shelves all bare of food, nothing there. And here there was so much stuff. It was almost impossible to make up your mind as to whether you wanted the extra crunchy bread or the baguettes or the chewy bread or the artisan or the plain white that melts in your mouth like it hasn't seen a grain of wheat for about a thousand years. <laughs> or the stuff with all those dubious Bible verses on it claiming that because it's got certain kinds of nut in it, it must be more biblical. And on and on and on. And I just froze. We have very little idea what it means to pray for our daily bread. But there's more to it than that. Just because we, most of us, have never known what it is to go hungry even for a day. And so do not feel the sort of desperation that lies behind this verse and this prayer for many people in the world. That doesn't mean it's not relevant Behind this is not only that verse in Proverbs in the Old Testament about not too much and not too little but also the principle of the manna in the Old Testament that God provided just enough for each day. See, it runs against the prosperity gospel. Jesus did not tell his disciples to pray that they would get rich or that they would prosper. He told them to pray that they would have just enough, just enough for each day. We are actually to pray not that we would have more stuff, but that we would have enough and no more. Is that how we pray? Seems to me that one of the great problems in Wheaton at the moment is a sort of spiritual lethargy. We think it would always be fine because after all we're in Wheaton. What's behind that? Well, surely it has a lot to do with money. 
We live in a prosperous town. It's hard for people who are not fairly well off to even live in Wheaton. That does not mean everyone is rich by any means, but it does mean that there is a lot of money around. And we're not used to thinking about daily bread. This much, no more necessary, just enough. Is that how we live? John Wesley advised the early Methodists this about money. He said, make as much as you can, save as much as you can, give as much as you can. Is that how you are living? Are you really praying to God to give me today even more money than I had yesterday? And if you do, I'll tip just a little bit more in the offering plate. Or are you praying to God, all I need is my daily bread. I can trust you just for today. You see, this is what stops Christians from being on mission for God. They become concerned about tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. He only gives you enough manna for today. Pray for your daily bread. Focus on that. Focus on the spiritual strength you need for today. You say, I don't have enough strength to deal with this thing that is coming up tomorrow. Well, that's okay. It's not tomorrow yet. He's only going to give you enough for today. If he gave you all you needed for tomorrow too, you'd burst because you couldn't hold it all. He gives you just enough for today. God's agenda is not our financial prosperity. God's agenda is our spiritual productivity. And he will give you just enough sustenance for this day. Pray for your daily bread today. Maybe there is some challenge that you have tomorrow. I'm not saying you shouldn't plan about it. The Bible tells us to plan, but to plan saying, if God wills. So we plan dependent on God's plan to correct and address and change. And we acknowledge that as we plan, if the Lord wills. But we don't ask God for enough sustenance for tomorrow. Planning for your future, saving for the future, that is all wise, of course. But your focus is on just enough, not too much so that you would forget God or too little, so that you would get bitter towards God, neither poverty nor riches, but just enough. And the rest you give to the cause of Christ, praying that God would provide for your daily bread. And there are people who live like this, business people, financial people, executives, mothers, fathers, praying, God, give us our daily bread, and they find that God provides. But then we come to what is in many ways the most challenging aspect of this prayer at a personal and practical and real level, and that is this forgiveness element that Jesus now introduces in verse 12. 
He says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus uh, then further explains that verse as he concludes his teaching here on prayer in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespass, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespass, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What does Jesus mean by this? First of all, it's important to realize how important this is for Jesus. There are many other things Jesus could have emphasized in this model prayer, but after the practical provision, now he emphasizes forgiveness. It takes up a significant portion of his teaching. It's interesting to note how small a proportion it takes up a most contemporary teaching about prayer. If you look through all the books on prayer and listen to all the sermons on prayer these days, seldom do they spend much time talking about forgiveness. Early in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says something similar where he says that if you remember that your brother has something against you, before you offer your gift at the altar, go and get reconciled to your brother. Now, Having said that, it's also important to notice that Jesus is not here talking about reconciliation. Now, Teachers differ on this, but my view is that when we forgive someone, we are not thereby immediately reconciled to them. So here we're being told that in some way that we'll explore in a moment, our forgiveness by God is conditional on our forgiveness of other people. In other words, because God has forgiven us, we are to forgive other people. We are not told that we should wait for them to apologize or repent. Or in some way establish a new pattern of life that we can trust. We are just told that we are to forgive people as we are forgiven people by God. Our forgiveness of other people is conditional upon our forgiveness by God. So there's no reconciliation necessarily with these people, at least not yet. Let me give you an example. Say a woman is being beaten by her husband. That's a terrible thing. Say he is also beating their children. What should the woman do? Certainly she should forgive her husband, for she is commanded to do so. But should that mean she should stay in that house, keeping herself and her children at risk? Of course not. How absurd. She should get out of there and have some sort of mediated separation. And while she has forgiven her husband, there is no way it is safe for her to be with her husband, certainly not their children with him, until there is real reconciliation. And that reconciliation would require repentance and then a new pattern of life to such an extent that it was reasonable to trust that the children and the wife would be safe again and then they could move back in together in a safe way. Do you see what I mean? I'm using this somewhat extreme example, though of course it certainly does happen. So you can see the importance of the point. We are to forgive those who have sinned against us. Jesus offers no exceptions. He does not say, forgive them only if they say sorry. He does not say, forgive them only if what they did was not too bad. We are to forgive them. Why? Because that is what forgiven people do. Forgiven people forgive people. It becomes part of the nature of a born-again Christian. They cannot help but forgive those around them. 
Why? Because they have been forgiven so much more themselves. That is what Christians are like, what real Christians are like. Dogs bark, cats meow, fish swim, Christians forgive. It's in their nature now. How could it not be? They have been forgiven so much themselves, so much more than what anyone could ever do against them. When you realize that your sins leave you liable to eternal damnation and the wrath of God, and that Christ took all that in his own body on the tree for you, that you might die to sin and live for righteousness, and that his righteousness is now yours, and you have his spirit, and you're now a child of the Father God, and you know him, and you have a purpose and destiny, and being given gifts by which you can serve God, and a calling as a Christian. So everything you do now has meaning and purpose, and one day you'll be with him forever in glory and joy. When you realize all that... How can you possibly not forgive someone when they do something against you? How can you not forgive someone when they use your name and misuse it and damage your reputation? Have you not damaged God's reputation far more and has God not forgiven you? Of course you will forgive them. How could you not? How can you not forgive someone when they take your ministry or muscle in on your business? Have you not taken God's glory and stolen it to try to make yourself a little God? Of course you will forgive them. How could you not? How can you not forgive someone even when they do something really terrible to you? Now, of course, it will be hard. And it will take time for you to have the strength to forgive, perhaps. You forgive them in principle. And then you find the hate comes back, so you forgive them again. And then the hate comes back, so you forgive them again and again and again. And one day you wake up and you think, yes, I really have forgiven them. It's gone from my spirit now and I've let that go. Of course you forgive them. What could be worse than rebelling against God himself, the creator of all? That's what we've all done. And if we've trusted in Christ, then all that is removed, and we are free, and we have God's Spirit. And as forgiven people, of course we forgive. It's part of our nature now, our new nature in Christ. But reconciliation is something different. That person who stole that business from you, would it be wise for you to go back into business with them? Probably not. Certainly not if they've not expressed regret for what they did, not if they've not established a new pattern of behavior that is reasonable to trust. You forgive them. But reconciliation comes as they live in a way that means it would not do you or them damage to be back in close proximity together. You are forgiving them, but you're not yet reconciled to them. You you, you do not, unlike God, you do not have the power to change their heart and to bring them more into line with God's will. You can forgive them. You must forgive them. But only God can convert them, change them, cause them to repent and say sorry to you and establish new life that you can trust and therefore be reconciled. So it is very important we distinguish this forgiveness clearly in our minds from reconciliation. But it is also, therefore, once we have done that, very important that we forgive. 
If we are a real Christian, we will forgive people. Perhaps that seems impossible to you. Well, my only question to you then is, are you a real Christian? Perhaps you have never really received the wonder of the free grace of God in your own life. People who find it hard to forgive other people often have areas in their lives they think are absolutely unforgivable. Perhaps it's something secret that is so embarrassing you dare not mention. But God already knows, and he stands ready to forgive if you ask. Perhaps it's something that happened in a different town or in the past that no one here knows about, and if they did, you are sure they would not forgive you. Perhaps not. I hope that Christian people would forgive you, and if they are real Christian people, in the end they will. But at any rate, that is not the point. God will forgive you. He has given his own son for you. How would he not also give you all things? Let me have a word with that tender conscience of yours. It is a fine thing to feel bad for something you have done. Do not harden your heart. But let your conscience listen to the voice of the Spirit and take you to confess your sin to God in the quiet of your own heart now that you might receive full forgiveness and the power of a new start in discipleship of Christ. But perhaps it does not seem impossible, it just seems impractical. It's all very well in theory, but these people who did those things to me, I keep trying to forgive them, but the pain keeps on coming back. Well, I'm afraid that's part of the wound of forgiving people. That's why I think in glory the Lamb of God still has the scars. Forgiveness is a one-time event, but the scars stay with you. And that one-time event in our own humanity needs to be repeated until we really do sense we are forgiving the person. Say in your heart, using that person's name who hurt you, I forgive you. You And put the person's name in place of the you, as you say it. I forgive you. Use their name. To forgive someone in no way means saying that what they did was okay or right or fine. Quite the contrary. When you forgive someone, you are saying to yourself and to God and the powers that be, the spiritual forces all around us, that what happened was wrong. Otherwise, it would not need to be forgiven. But you're also saying that you release your right to judge. You say, well, how can you do that? All sins will either find their reconciliation at the cross or be punished eternally in hell. Do you really want to carry those sins with you? Take them to the cross, which is sufficient for the sins done by you and the sins done against you. Don't worry, there will be an accounting for every sin done against you. God is the judge. Let him be the judge. It is mine to repay. I will will avenge, says the Lord. Let God be the judge. Say that you forgive that person and then do something kind to the person. This is what Paul teaches. If your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap 
burning coals on his head. That does not mean that you're doing something nasty to them, heaping burning coals on his head. It means that your simple act of some simple kindness can be used by God as a tool of conviction in their mind on their heads. And so bring about their repentance if God wills. In a sense, This forgiveness is for your own good. As Paul says after that part I just quoted, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good using the tool of forgiveness. Or as Jesus puts it here, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Well, we focus on the second half of that sentence because it's the part that people are most confused about. But the first part of it is equally important, of course. Come to God and ask God for forgiveness. No prayer moment, no prayer meeting, no worship service is complete without some moment of asking God for forgiveness. Well, now we come to the last part we will consider in this second section of how to pray, which is about praying for ourselves. First, the practical, daily bread. Then the forgiveness, which verse 12 ties together with verses 14 and 15. And now here, the spiritual and moral battle that we all face. Jesus puts it like this in verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, what does this mean? Why would Jesus encourage us to ask God not to lead us into temptation? Surely God does not tempt anyone. So why are we to ask that God would not lead us into temptation? Here we are asking God to do things that he has already promised to do. We are told that God will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear, but will provide us with the way out so we can stand up under it. But that does that mean we should not pray that we not be tempted beyond what we can bear? No, of course not. We should pray for that very thing. Here then is a first principle of intercessory prayer. Pray in what God has promised out. You see it all the time through the Bible. For instance, when the disciples gather together in Acts after they're being persecuted, they trace through Scripture God's promise that such persecution would happen to God's anointed and to God's people, and also His promise that nonetheless the gospel would grow and flourish. So that is exactly what they pray for. And God's word grew and flourished in spite of the persecution, just as God had promised and as they therefore prayed. This is what it means to pray in God's will. You pray according to what God has promised he would do. And therefore, this is what you pray. Now with confidence that it is God's will and that his prayer will be answered because that is what he has promised would happen. Therefore, you can pray in faith because you know you are praying according to God's will because you find in God's word that this is what he has promised. So the promises of God become fuel to pray with power. You pray in what God has promised out. And so here, we live in a world where there are great temptations. These are too innumerable to mention. And for some, one area is more difficult than for others. For some, it is food. 
They can hardly get through the grocery aisle without staring longingly at the ice cream tubs. For others, it is gossip. They find it almost, but not entirely, impossible not to pass on that little bit of information to the next person they meet, just as a matter of concern, you understand. For others, it is depression. It's so hard for them, battling against the negative thoughts that assail them all the time. Some of that is medical, of course. We, we go together as people, and some of us have particular desires in certain areas because we're hardwired in th- that direction. Some of it is psychological. Some of it is spiritual, too, perhaps. But at any rate, an area of weakness can be used to tempt you to give up or that no one cares about you. Some introverts are tempted to stay away from prayer meetings because they just cannot stand being with all those people. Some extroverts are tempted to not have individual personal quiet times because they find it so hard to be in a room on their own in quiet. Some are tempted by the highly sexualized society in which we live where you can hardly turn on a computer without being bombarded by sexualized images or Drive down the highway in Chicago without seeing billboards inviting you to whorehouses, a.k.a. gentlemen's clubs, etc., etc. Some are tempted to pride. They are super secure, and it's hard for them to ever receive anything from anyone else because they just assume that they know more and are better than everyone else, even though they try very hard not to say it. We are all in this battle. There is evil around, and there is an evil one attacking God's people. Some versions translate the end of verse 13 as the evil one. But either way, we are being tempted, and there is evil tempting us, or the evil one tempting us. What to do? There is much to say about that, and many books written on disciplines and accountability and all the rest. But Jesus goes somewhere different, first of all. It begins with prayer. In the secret place, in the closet, in the inner room, in the place where no one can see you but God. And only he can reward you. You specifically ask God to release you from that area of temptation and sin. It is my experience that most Christians are only as holy as they really want to be. And if you are really, truly serious about coming more like Christ, then it is my experience that the very first thing and the most important thing, the thing above all to do is to significantly and seriously and truly ask God to give you the power to live for Him with holiness and Christ-likeness and to be done with that particular area of temptation with which you struggle. Such is prayer according to Jesus. How not to pray, verses 5 to 8. Not like the hypocrites to impress other people. Not like the pagans treating God as if he could be manipulated with magic. How to pray, verses 9 to 15. First to God that his name will be hallowed, his kingdom come, his will be done. Second for ourselves. 
a practical daily bread. Neither too much nor too little. Forgiveness, as we also forgive. And to not be led into temptation. So, College Church, be a people of prayer. Amen.